Sentire Media. Hello everyone and welcome to A History of Italy. Special episode 3, Republic Day and an unprecedented institutional crisis. As I record, we are getting close to the 2nd of June 2018, the 72nd anniversary of the vote in 1946 that decided that Italy would no longer be a monarchy and would become a republic. Here is the story of those fateful days. On the eve of the 8th of May, 1946, Italian Communist Party leader and Justice Minister Palmiro Togliatti had a lot on his mind. I imagine that politicians always do, but Italy, after the Second World War, was a place that could weigh heavy on most people's minds. The country was just one accident during a strike, one ex-fascist meeting a sticky end, or one arrest away from escalating into a potential civil war. The weapons the resistance had used during the last months of the war hadn't just disappeared, they were hidden away, buried in haylofts or up in the mountains, just waiting for a reason to be used. Italy, just like many other countries, was a part of the giant chessboard that was fast becoming the Cold War. However, there was one thing that Togliatti was pretty sure would go his way, and that was the upcoming referendum on the 2nd of June, in which the country would decide if it would remain a monarchy under King Victor Emmanuel III of Savoy or become a republic. Togliatti was sure that the image of the king was far too tarnished for the Italians to want to keep him around. After all, was it not he who had basically allowed Mussolini and his fascists to take over the country? He was sure that in the days following the vote, the Repubblica Italiana, the Republic of Italy, would be formed. After all, the major parties, the Christian Democrats, the Socialists, the Communists, and, of course, the Republicans, were in favour of the Republic. The only exception were the Liberals. Then, on the 9th of May, 1946, King Victor Emmanuel III abdicated in favour of his son, Umberto, who thus became Umberto II. Umberto II was no longer the king under whom the fascists had taken control and dragged the nation into a devastating war alongside the Nazi regime. Instead, he was the king who had represented the country under the CLN, the Comitato di Liberazione Nazionale, the National Liberation Committee, which had been working with the advancing allies. He had, in truth, already ruled Italy with the title of Luogotenente Generale del Regno d'Italia, General Lieutenant of the Kingdom of Italy, ever since Rome had been liberated on the 5th of June 1944. Plus, he was a more modern-looking Hollywood-style king, tall and slim with a beautiful young wife, Maria José of Belgium, the kind of royal family a country wouldn't mind being represented by. Palmiro Togliatti was furious and released an uncharacteristically aggressive statement. 
l'ultima fellonia di una casa regnanti di fedifraghi che dimostra ad ogni passo di mancare a quella buona fede costituzionale che è essenziale per chi deve regnare non con una legge assoluta ma con una costituzione che risponda alla volontà sovrana del popolo. It is the last act of treachery of a ruling house of oathbreakers that demonstrates with every step they take that they lack the good constitutional faith that is essential for those who must reign not with absolute law but under a constitution that answers to the sovereign will of the people. The game was afoot. Although the feeling, including that of the new king, was that the country would still opt for the republic, the monarchists now felt that they had more of a chance. King Umberto II was not technically allowed to intervene in politics and was to stay neutral. But that did not mean he had to stay closed up in the Quirinale, his residence in Rome. He was not to campaign actively in favour of the monarchy for the referendum, but when you are the monarch, all you have to do was walk around and, hey presto, you're a walking, talking election poster. In the days after he became king, a group of monarchists gathered outside the Quirinale and enthusiastically applauded Umberto, his queen and his children. The crowd then moved towards the Viminale, the headquarters of the Interior Ministry. They were charged down with jeeps and horses. No one was killed, but many were wounded. The following day the parties, except for the Liberal Party, called for a pro-Republican demonstration. These were just a few examples of the complicated public order situation that Togliatti as Justice Minister and Giuseppe Romita, the Interior Minister, had to deal with in that crucial turning point in Italian history. King Umberto went on a tour. Genova, Milan, Turin, Naples, Sicily, Calabria and Sardinia. This trip soon showed the way different parts of the country were leaning. In the south, he was greeted with cheering and enthusiasm, while in the north, with cold indifference and even hostility, with the occasional booing. Despite the high tension, there was no actual violence. This doesn't mean that everything in the country was quiet in general. Indeed, banditism and was rampart not only in the south, and killing of ex-fascists was very common. Furthermore, left-wing pro-Republican activists were opposed in the South, while pro-monarchy activists hanging posters were harassed in the North. In the lead-up to the election, Interior Minister Romita hardly left the ministry. He would dine there with the head of police and the carabinieri, the military police, as well as his wife, who would bring him clean clothes. The building was turned into a fortress, surrounded by jeeps, armoured trucks, soldiers on horseback, as well as the chevaux de frise. Not 100% sure of the pronunciation, and if that's actually what I mean to say, those sort of cross things that they would put on the beaches also at Normandy with barbed wire. Anyway, they had those around there. Despite this warlike scenario and the tension, the 2nd of June came and went without incident. The Italians voted. They were not only voting for the referendum, but also to form the Costituente, the first parliament of the new era that would have the task of setting up a new constitution. King Umberto II voted, and as was his duty, he remained neutral, 
putting in a blank ballot on both votes. Now, all they had to do was wait. As the results started to come in on the night between the 3rd and the 4th of June, Giuseppe Romita, interior minister and staunch Republican, started to despair. The monarchy was winning. He did not inform anyone except the Prime Minister, Alcide de Gasperi, who in turn informed the office of the King, who started to hope again. No one else was informed, also to maintain the public order. For a night and a day, in the hearts and minds of those in the know, Italy would remain a monarchy. Then, during the night between the 4th and the 5th of June, the votes of the North started to come in. The votes for the Republic quickly overtook those for the monarchy. On the 5th of June in the morning, the newspapers were still cautious with their headlines, but by lunchtime, when the special edition came out, they were declaring for the Republic. The votes were clear. 10,718,502 for the monarchy, representing 45.73%, and 12,718,641 for the Republic, two million more than for the monarchy, and a percentage of 54.27. As if anyone had actually needed it, the vote was further proof of the North-South divide. All of the provinces of the South, except for Latina and Trapani, resulted in a majority for the monarchy, and in the North, everywhere except for two provinces, voted in majority for the Republic. The situation of the Prime Minister's party, the Christian Democrats, was interesting. The party was officially for the Republic. The Catholic Church, the inspiration behind the Catholic Party, was officially neutral. However, with a series of local priests working on people's opinions, of the around 8 million CD voters, Christian Democrat voters, 6 million ended up voting for the monarchy. The announcement by the government on the 5th of June was not the official announcement. Indeed, the final word on the matter was that of the Supreme Court, who would give the official announcement on the 10th of June. In any case, on the 6th of June, while the world celebrated the first anniversary of the D-Day landings, Umberto II sent his family away to Naples to board a ship to then go into exile into Portugal. The now, or almost, ex-queen refused to leave and a secretary was sent to send her off with force if necessary, as was ordered by the king. At this point, it was just a question of waiting for the 10th of June when the Supreme Court would meet and make the result official. Easy, right? Everyone just sit back, chillax, enjoy your victory or accept defeat. It was just a question of formalities now, right? Wrong. A day later, a group of legal experts pointed out that the referendum had been set up with contradicting rules. It was not clear if the winning side simply had to get one more vote than the losing side or they had to reach a quorum of 50% plus one of the total registered voters. There were two problems here. One, the interior minister, Romita, hadn't said anything about the blank or null votes that would make up the total. And to make matters worse... It seems they had already been destroyed. The monarchists and the king himself 
held on to this with a determination like my daughter used to do when I would have to drag her away to have a shower. Tensions began to rise again. When the tenth finally came, the head judge, Giuseppe Pagano, after announcing the results, went on to declare that the court would meet again to discuss the appeals that have since arisen. This was a further hope for the king and his camp to hold on to, and hold on he did for dear life. On the 11th of June, tensions began to rise even further, and the government began to fear that the king would declare the government disbanded and nominate a new one. On the 12th, skirmishes in Naples between monarchists and the police left two officers and nine protesters dead. Prime Minister de Gasperi decided to act. He declared himself the new head of state, thus substituting the king and acting upon the results of the election as certified by the court on the 10th of June. The king now had two choices. He could either accept the fait compli or oppose the government and risk civil war. King Umberto II chose the former. He said goodbye to his staff and made his way to Ciampino Airport and took a plane to join his family in exile in Portugal. The Italian tricolor flag with the symbol of the royal family that flew over the Quirinale, the last in the nation to be exposed on a public building, was taken down after the king left. The royal Savoia family would not be allowed back into Italy until the 10th of November, 2010. Italy no longer had a king. The republic was born, and that republic would have a president. In the two years that followed, the Costituente, the parliament that came from the election of the 2nd of June 1946, worked to give itself a constitution that is still seen as a great document today and a model for other constitutions setting out the powers of the president, among other things. Interestingly, as I record this, almost 72 years later, after the events we are talking about, we are living a historical institutional crisis that has no president in the history of our relatively young republic. Just a step back to recap on how a government is formed. The general election elects parties that then go and form a new parliament. The President of the Republic then designates a Prime Minister that he feels is the most likely to be able to form a government that can win a confidence vote in Parliament, usually based on the members of Parliament that the parties supporting that government can muster. The designated PM sets out his list of ministers and proposes it to the President. One of the prerogatives of the President of the Republic is to refuse any minister that the designated Prime Minister has proposed. This has been done in the past. President Sandro Pertini refused a minister proposed by Prime Minister Francesco Cossiga in 1979. President Scalfaro refused one of Silvio Berlusconi's ministers in 1994, and incidentally that minister is now serving a prison sentence for corruption. President Ciampi refused Berlusconi again in 2001, and President Napolitano, Giorgio Napolitano, refused Matteo Renzi, a minister, in 2014. So, it's nothing really new to refuse a minister. The President of the Republic now is Sergio Mattarella. Two of the parties who had the most votes in the recent election on the 4th of March have been trying to form a government. The leaders of the parties 
Luigi Di Maio of the Five Star Movement and Matteo Salvini of the League. And if you want to know something more about them, you can listen back to the special episode on the Italian election, had identified as their Prime Minister a man called Giuseppe Conte. The designated Prime Minister put his list of ministers together and proposed it to the President of the Republic. There was one choice in particular that President wasn't thrilled about, a certain Paolo Savona, who would become the Finance Minister. But there are strong suspicions about his anti-Euro positions. He has been very outspoken against the Euro in the past, and though he has recently moderated his, his position, there is still some suspicion. Rather than change their choice for the finance minister, PM-designate Conte and the parties supporting him have decided to renounce the attempt to form a government. In true Italian style, in the initial hours after this event, it was fire and brimstone, thunder and lightning, talk of impeachment. As is also Italian style, the next day brought calmer words. The country now is very much divided, between those who blame President Mattarella, saying that his refusal is an attempt to stop the forces of change represented by the populist parties in favour of the establishment and the financial markets. On the other hand, there are those who wonder why the parties couldn't simply propose a different name. Luigi Di Maio of the Five Star Movement claimed to have done so, proposing two names belonging to the League, However, the League itself seems to be unaware of this. Some even go as far as to accuse the leader of the League, Matteo Salvini, of sabotaging the formation of the government in an attempt to go back to the polls, hoping for a stronger showing for his party. In any case, we are still, after the election on the 4th of March, without a government, and none in sight, at least none that will last beyond the next very probable election at the end of the summer. Who knows what the protagonists of that fateful 2nd of June 1946 would have thought of the current situation. We can only guess. As always, thank you very, very much for listening. If you want to get in touch with comments, questions, corrections, you can write to hello at ahistoryofitaly.com. At the same URL, ahistoryofitaly.com, there is a relatively weak attempt at a website, but you can find a few little things there, such as clicking through to our social media or some maps and timelines that can help you navigate the complicated history of our country. Thanks very much again to all of you for listening, and until next time, arrivederci. Sentire Media. Hey, podcast producers and show hosts. Do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Sentire Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy. And we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. 
With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com, that's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com, and find out how to submit your show.